Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. Joey, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. It's good to be here. Um, we took a week off because we had one worship, so we're back. We've mm-hmm. got, uh, we're studying still Acts chapter four. Um, I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. I just feel like, I know we're taking our time and I know it's going to be a long series, but I'm like, we're already like, we're, we're in, chapter four. in this. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. we're starting to see some opposition, right? So we yep. know that things are really moving. And, um, so why don't you give us a recap from your sermon on Sunday, Acts chapter four, verses 23 to 31 and yeah. sermon entitled the prayer. The prayer. That's right. Yeah. So we're, we're in this context, like that goes all the way to the end of the first verse of chapter eight of the church kind of being gathered together. Um, so remember this is, uh, this is the Jewish apostles preaching primarily to Jews that the Jewish Messiah has come. And this group is being formed, and it's it's a bit anachronistic to call it the church yet, because that word hasn't been introduced in regards to this group of people. Uh, they don't yet see themselves as like some as a group that distinctively has been called out from um, the the broader Jewish community. Um, be, but we're at the point where we're we're moving in that direction because the Jewish leaders are pushing back on this group and saying, no, you're saying Jesus is the Messiah. He is not the Messiah. He's not the anointed one. He's not the one we've been waiting for. We know what the one we've been waiting for will look like. And it's not this, right? It's not a crucified person. And you say he was raised, but whatever, right? No, that never happens and you can't prove it and all of that. Um, so anyway, they're facing this opposition. They're being told, all right, you can go, can keep, doing miracles or whatever, because doing miracles of a sort is kind of a common thing. Um, whether it's, you know, you're a trickster and a charlatan or they're actually real miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in which case there's, you know, Luke goes out of his way to be like, no, this is a real miracle. Like this guy was born lame and he's now 40. Like this, everybody knows this guy couldn't walk. This isn't like some poser who was just put there in order to make a show, you know, put on a show, make some money and get out of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, They've been told, keep doing whatever you're doing, whatever. Um, or basically, we're not going to try and stop you. Just don't preach that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, so that's what they've been told not to do. They've got this ban on preaching. They go back to uh, the rest of says their friends, their own, literally in Greek. And so this is a, you know, the smaller group or a core group or a something, right? There's no, there's really no place they could go where they could gather together, like the five, six, eight, however many thousands of people. So this is not the whole church, it's a smaller group. And they're like, hey, this is what we were told. And then the group prays. And, and that's what mm-hmm. I wanted to focus on was the prayer. Um, they, in their prayer, it, I mean, it's fascinating. They rely on the sovereignty of the, they remind themselves of the sovereignty of God. Like God is in control of everything. We know that opposition to God and to his anointed one, his Messiah, and to those who are followers of the Messiah, we know that kind of thing is going to happen. We read it in Psalm 2. And then they say, if this is what's going to happen to us, Mm -hmm. because this is what scripture pictures, then we're going to need we're going to need more resources if we're going to be fit for this task, if we're going to be able to do it. So they pray for, we need boldness to continue to preach the word of God, which is the message about Jesus. Like we're going to need boldness in the face of opposition. And what I really wanted to draw out of this is 
like they didn't pray for God to change anything external to themselves, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't do strategy discussions and letter writing campaigns and call the representatives. They didn't pray for God to change the leadership or to change their circumstances. They just said, here's reality. God's in control of it all. We know we're going to face this opposition. Give us boldness. So I, I kept saying over and over again, it's like, my tendency anyway is I would much rather pray for God to make things easier than to pray to make me stronger. Um, but what we see pictured here is like, Lord, make us stronger, make us bold, give us courage. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's not like an either or it's not like we'll never pray for the world. Right. Because we right. do also right. in the father's prayer, like the Lord's prayer, say like your kingdom come. Like we do want to yep. see that on earth you know but yeah. um but it, we also you're just highlighting a different w way to pray when you come up to facing obstacles right mm -hmm. yeah and i'm sure that this this group prayer was not just this just these few verses right you give any preacher uh, an opportunity to pray and it's going to be like 15 minutes long and so i'm sure there was much more in their prayer but luke is telling us this and this part for a reason and we're going to see paul uh, when he's on his missionary journeys, uh, I mean, he uses every tool in the tool uh, toolbox. Um, he's going to appeal to Caesar. He's going to argue. He's going to condemn. He's going to, I mean, he's going to do all sorts of things. Um, he, he, you know, he uses every tool. He doesn't just sit back and pray, hey, make me bolder, make me bolder, make me bolder. He's using any, any tool he can. So, mm -hmm. um, but here in this, the very first time that the church faces opposition, um, they don't pray for opposition to stop or persecution or suffering to stop. They pray for God to give them courage in the midst of it. And I think that's pretty instructive for us. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. Um, yeah. All right. So Joey, can you talk a little bit more about um, the use of the term Holy spirit in verse 25? I'm going to read it really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Starting in 24, it says, um, and the, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, servant said by the Holy Spirit. And then we're quoting Psalm 2 in, for mm -hmm. the next verse and a half. Um, could you tell us what was their understanding of the Holy Spirit in, at that time? Because theology of the Trinity has certainly developed in the last 2000 years. Um, mm -hmm. So what was this to them? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, yeah. It, it, so the doctrine of the Holy spirit is uh, in our understanding of the Holy spirit um, as he you know, is a member of the Trinity has developed over time. It's developed kind of post or after the writing of the new Testament as uh, early church theologians and pastors are reading this and going, so how does all this go together? Because what Luke's doing here, what they're praying is they are praying in ways that describe their experience. So with that in mind, we'll back up a little bit and think of the Jewish understanding of the Holy Spirit. So in the Jewish understanding, God is one. And we emphasize oneness above everything else. God is one. And so the, but the spirit continues to show up in Old Testament scripture. The spirit hovers over the face of the waters and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so the spirit was uh, largely understood to mean um, God's acting agency in the world. This is how God acts in the world through his spirit. Um, 
you know, we act in the world through our bodies, through our hands, through our legs, through, you know, through our feet, whatever we, you know, we act in the world physically, God acts in the world through his spirit, spiritually. Um, it, so something like, Hey, uh, the mouth, you know, saying this was spoken through David by the Holy spirit said by the Holy spirit is, is, uh, in the Jewish understanding, it's like, well, this is said by the agency of God. It's, uh, so they're, they're, so back to this text, you know, uh, Luke is describing Peter and these guys are praying and, and they're basically praying and describing their experience of God, mm-hmm. um, and his agency in the world. So you get to verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy spirit, continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Uh, so what does it mean to be filled with the Holy spirit? They're saying, well, this is God working in us and through us filled is Luke's metaphor for empowerment. Um, it's not like I'm an empty vessel and the Holy spirit, you know, fills me up. And now there's something in this vessel. That's me. No, it's that, that the Holy spirit, which I think they would have said and understood as like God's working in the world. God's agency in the world is now filling me, empowering me, working through me. And with the direct, you know, result that they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Uh, Mm -hmm. So with them praying and and writing and talking in the way that describes their spirit or their, their uh, experience of God working through them, uh, then later theologians are reading this and saying, well, how do we understand what or who the Holy spirit is? Because we get in the next chapter, which we're going to look at next week, chapter five, we get Peter saying to Ananias and Sapphira, like you have, lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have lied to this, uh, it, you know, you can't lie to a impersonal force or a, a thing. You lie to people. And so the, the, the way they're describing their, their experience of God, of Jesus and understanding who he is and the spirit, God's agency in the world um, later theologians are reading these going, okay, we need to think about how do these three go together? Um, we can't go down one road that says, well, there's a God who then became Jesus and then became the Holy Spirit. Um, that heresy called modalism was rejected pretty early on that there isn't one God who shows up in three different modes throughout history. So that doesn't really work. Um, so, well, maybe Jesus wasn't really God. Well, it's, okay, that's not going to work. Uh, well, maybe the Holy Spirit is. So there's there's sort of like a, instead of a trinity, there's a diunity of father and son, but nothing else. Um, and so eventually, this is summarizing a very long conversation and a number of um, horizontal feet on my bookshelf uh, of <laughs> books about Trinitarianism. Basically saying, okay, as we move, we have to understand these are, there's one God who exists in three persons, eternally existing in three persons. The the son is eternally begotten of the father. The spirit is eternally breathed out from the father or from the father and the son. And that these three um, exist eternally as one God. I mean, that's the essence of Trinitarianism as we, uh, as we use it. So, but to get all the way back to your question, how would they have understand, understood this? Um, they, I'm sure Peter would not have confessed a fully articulated with all the right Greek and Latin words, you know, fully articulated understanding of, of the Trinitarian nature of God. But he would have said, um, I know that I have been reconciled with the father 
because of the sacrifice of the son. And it is the Holy Spirit working in me and through me that testifies to the truth of my relationship with God, the father through the son. And so it's like that basic understanding of whatever's going on with God, there seems to be at least this three-part experience um, that needed to be explained in theological language and led to the whole development of Mm -hmm. Trinitarianism. Yeah. So then in verse 31, um, Mm -hmm. in the same, in the same topic, they were filled with the Holy Spirit following their prayer. Um, so like, what did that exactly look like? Or what does that mean? You said, um, in your sermon that this wasn't like a second Pentecost. It didn't, um, like they already did have the Holy spirit. Um, so then what do you think that this experience or what did it look like for them? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, two theological words to keep in mind here. One is indwelling and the other is empowering. So we are told that when someone becomes a believer in Jesus, I mean, we're told this in scripture is what I mean. Uh, We're taught that when someone becomes uh, a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells that person, lives within them. And that's a permanent state. You don't lose, you know, the indwelling of the spirit. Um, And so when we get to, when we get to later development in Acts, uh, we start, let me back up a little bit. Where we are now today in church, in sort of not church history, but the history of how God is working in the world, there is no like time distance between coming to faith in Christ and being indwelt with the spirit. Okay, so there isn't, okay, I have faith in Jesus. Now I need to get baptized and then I'll receive the spirit. The spirit will live within me. Um, Or I need to speak in tongues and then the spirit will live within me or anything like that. Um, In this early history of the church, we do see some separation between those things. There's faith in Jesus, and then the indwelling of the Spirit um, comes um, with a a bit of time difference in between as a, um, like a signifier that like, yeah, this is true. So later we're going to see, I think it's Peter who like prays, put his hands on these guys and says, receive the Spirit, and then they are all filled with the Spirit. Um, So indwelling is different from empowering. Indwelling is when you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. Empowering is when uh, the Spirit, well, empowers, right? Gives you ability for a specific task. Now, I'm taking a theological understanding and I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I, like I'm reading Acts through the lens of my theology because that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to understand the different experiences here in Acts 2 and in Acts 4 um, and using the theological thought that develops in other places more clearly to help me understand it. So what I'm seeing in Acts chapter two could be that initial indwelling. I actually don't think it is because, and I forget the reference off, off the top of my head. I think it's in John where the resurrected Jesus before he ascends breathes on them and says, receive the spirit. So we have the indwelling of these first followers of Jesus happening before Pentecost. Uh, And then at Pentecost, I think what we're seeing is an empowering. They are filled with the spirit. They're empowered by the spirit. They're given specific gifts for a ministry purpose, which is speaking in tongues. Mm. In in Acts chapter four, they're filled by the spirit. They're given a specific gift for a ministry purpose. They're given courage and boldness. That's what they asked for. And then they continue to speak the word of God with the boldness that the Holy Spirit gives them through that filling, that empowering, that equipping of the spirit. Okay. So I hope that made sense. Uh, no, it that did. That's great. 
Yeah. Yeah. I should, I should, you know, caveat this, that, that theologians will argue about whether or not Pentecost Acts 2 is the initial indwelling or if it's a later empowering. Um, I tend to read it as a later empowering, um, that the initial indwelling is when Jesus breathed on them, received the spirit. Um, because then we see that action echoed later when Peter does that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I caught that when you said that. I was like, hmm, maybe that's just a me thing. Like maybe I've misunderstood it you know, all this time, or maybe it is just like a different perspective that is new to a lot of people, which is that, yeah, the the Pentecost, it wasn't the initial indwelling. Yeah. Now I'm double checking like, okay, where's the verse for this? Because I don't want to, I don't want to lead us wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Acts 8, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is when Simon the magician, I think is wanting, he's like, what, you have the power to give people the Holy Spirit? I want that you know what trick did you use to get that um mm. yeah so that's 817 so when the yeah this is when the apostles at jerusalem had heard that people in samaria had had heard this the message of jesus and were coming to faith in jesus as the messiah they sent peter and john who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the holy spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them they'd only been baptized in the name of jesus so they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And it's significant because this is the first, in Acts 8, this is the first step um, beyond ethnic Judaism where the Messiah, um, the, the, the new life in the Messiah has extended beyond Jews now to Samaritans, half Jews. And so there's this authenticating moment where the apostolic authority of the Jerusalem church says to this now not, you know, not uniformly Jewish movement, like, yes, you were praying for you to receive the spirit too. And then receiving the spirit is evidence that the gospel is intended to go beyond just Israel and, and to go to the whole world. And it's mm-hmm. part of how Luke, you know, sets up acts is that every time there's a movement of, of the gospel into an, you know, a broader ethnic group from Jews to half Jews to God fears to Gentiles, like you see a spirit empowering happening. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. So um, one other texted question. You gave us a challenge and personal example in the sermon when it comes to how we deal with our or face our own cultural issues. Would you be willing to address mm-hmm. some of these hot mm-hmm. button issues and how should we respond to those issues as a loving Christ follower? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a great question because without, you know, getting into the specifics of any one debate or any one issue or the other. I think what I most, what I think we can get most from this passage specifically is there's a place, there's certainly a place and a time for praying for um, the people who lead, the people who influence, whatever, like praying for them to come to their senses or like see, see who God is or submit to scripture or however you want to put it. Um, But we, the church has always, let me back that up. It hasn't always. Um, When the church has seen itself as a countercultural minority living out the kingdom of God in the midst of a broader pagan um, Babylon, that is when it has always had the most power to witness to the resurrection of Jesus. But when the church has seen itself as the uh, cultural force, the majority that dictates how everything else works, um, that that marriage of culture or church and politics uh, has always tarnished the witness of the church. 
So it's no fun to live in a world that isn't made for us, that doesn't fit us, um, that says what is good is bad and what is bad is good, that celebrates what should be condemned and condemns what should be celebrated. Um, that doesn't feel good for us, especially if we grew up in a world that largely, um, you know, that that largely affirmed the things that that uh, scripture affirms, or at least outwardly affirmed those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but these guys are seeing themselves as a minority messianic Jewish movement um, that is testifying to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, even against the uh, the wishes of the people who should know better. And in that context, they're like, well, then we're going to need boldness for this moment. Um, I think, to, to put it another way, it's a lot easier to pray that the task would become easier than that we would be fit to the task. Mm-hmm. And to become a follower of Jesus is not, it is not about praying the right prayer and believing the right thing so that someday in the future you can go to heaven when you die. Coming to faith in Jesus is about being made right with God so that you can engage with him in the, the lifelong, or say history long project of taking his creation project and getting it back on track, which means sure. coming to Jesus comes with a calling. And if we're praying for the calling to be easier, then we're missing the point. The point is to pray that we would be fit for the calling, not that the calling would get easier or be made easier for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're right. That's the harder. I think that is harder to, because that means that we don't get to uh, opt out as easily or. Yeah. Like, we don't get to pray. opt out or, or, you know, pray for a better circumstance. We should pray for better circumstances. I'm not, you know, I'm all for freedom of speech and religious freedom and freedom to worship, uh, freedom to pray, uh, freedom of religion, all of these things. I, I think yeah. they, they, the reason they're important is that they give us the freedom and the platform to argue persuasively for the truth of our beliefs in the face of others arguing persuasively for the truth of their beliefs. I think that's absolutely important um, and should be prayed for. And in some cases should be argued for, maybe even fought for. Um, but th- this is kind of a dumb um, illustration, but like a year or two ago when I was running a lot and training up for a particular run that I wanted to do, I had this uh, hierarchy of food that I could eat. And it was like 10 categories of food. And so at the very bottom was like desserts, and then it moved up and there's like carbs and fatty meats and lean meats and like ultimately vegetables at the top. Right. And the point wasn't like, keep track of how many of each you eat. It was, um, whatever category you're putting a little tick mark in, cause you ate a thing there, make sure you've eaten more of the category above it. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, you know, if you do it that way, you're eating tons of vegetables and, you know, you're eating nuts and legumes after that and the lean meats after that. And then whole grains after that, you know, you're working your way down. The point was like, if you're going to have one cupcake, by the time you get to the top, you have to have had 10 servings of vegetables. So maybe I should have used this illustration, but it's like, Hey, yes, we should pray for better circumstances and um, not easier ministry, but receptive hearts and things like that. But that should probably be on a one to 10 scale for how often we pray for boldness to face the task that's been given to us. So for every one tick for God, you know, condemn them, fix them, change them, correct them, whatever. Just make sure there's 10 for 
um, fit me to this task. Give me boldness. Give me courage. Give me wisdom. I need your peace. I need, you know, all of those things. So, yeah. Hey, that's a great application. I think that's a good spot to uh, wrap up and we appreciate um, the text of questions. It's just really nice yeah, to be able to I, uh, have that engagement with people. Oh man. Yeah. I love it. Cause then I yeah. uh, definitely super helps us to know what questions we have uh, answered and which ones we didn't. So yeah, love it. Love it. All right. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, this is great. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of cut for time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.